And what my students say before they begin is that they quite literally cannot imagine being 20-year-old college students on campus without Instagram. And then after the first week and the second week and the third week, uh, they realize not only that they can live without it, but that their lives, they feel this sort of relief. Welcome to the Know Why podcast. I'm your host, Liberty McCarter. For many of us, it's not enough to know what people say about life's most important questions. We also want to know why. Each week, Know Why tackles tough questions on topics ranging from spirituality to current events. While we approach these issues from a Christian perspective, we discuss diverse opinions and ultimately dive into what the research says. Are you ready to know why? Let's get started. Welcome to the Know Why Podcast. I'm your host, Liberty McCarter. I'm so glad you're listening today because we have a great conversation, particularly if you are currently in college or about to head off to college or you know somebody in college. But even if you're not in any of those categories, you're going to want to listen because we're going to be focusing on faith and technology. And no matter where you are in life, those are some relevant topics that we all need to think about. So my guest today is Dr. Brad East. He is a professor of theology at Abilene Christian University, also the author of several books, including some coming out next year, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. East. Oh, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. So I found you um, because of an article that I actually read in Christianity Today called Stay the Course, How to Keep Your Faith in College. Um, but one of the things that you focus on is how... Um, important technology actually is uh, in keeping your faith in college and on a, at a few different levels, which we'll get into. So um, that's how I found you. The article is great. We'll post a link to it on knowwhypodcast.com. But before we get into some of the things you discuss in your article, um, you teach on Christian discipleship and digital technology at Abilene Christian University. So can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like and why there is a need for that topic at school? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the class was born out of observing my students' lives and having conversations with them. I've always taught a course called Christianity and Culture uh, that's more kind of big picture. And if you, you might think about the digital class as Christianity and culture, colon, thinking about digital technology or how to be faithful in a digital age. And I piloted it and immediately, you know, every section of the class was full each year because students were eager not only to talk about these things. Some of them came in thinking we'd sort of be um, rah, rah, cheerleading digital technology, mm. uh, but all of them, all of them come in knowing that they uh, need help and need to come uh, into a space where they can explore how to be uh, better, more healthy, more faithful in relationship to these devices. Great. Well, yeah, we are going to talk a little bit about that here in just a minute. Um, but before we kind of dive into that specifically, you note in your article in Christianity Today that young people are the most likely to leave organized religion. So can you tell us more about that trend? Yeah, happy to. So my my knowledge about this, I'm a theologian. I don't, uh, I'm not a sociologist. Uh, I'm not a statistician. But so far as I, uh, so far as I read the literature, I think there's widespread agreement that um, 
each generation in America that starting at the young, you know, starting with the youngest and then going to the next oldest, um, is going to church, participating in organized religion less than the older one. I think mm-hmm. I've probably said that in a confusing way. In other words, the children of boomers go to church less, the children of Gen X go to church less than Gen X, mm-hmm. uh, millennials go to church even less than Gen X, and Gen Z, the, the new generation, is going to church the least. And it doesn't mean that they are all atheists, much less mm-hmm. angry new atheists. Um, they often continue to pray or to believe in God or maybe to be willing to explore alternative spiritualities, but they identify as N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. Mm-hmm. So on on surveys, they check the box that says they, uh, what is your organized religion or what religion do you belong to? What denomination? And they check the box that says none. And so they're often called the nuns, which also sounds like N-U-N-S. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I teach at a, I teach in West Texas in the Bible Belt in a very churchy town at a Christian university. So on the one hand, I don't see the kind of mass Christian exit in my classroom. But what I do see is a lot of generally positive vibes towards religion or Christian spirituality or faith, but not a lot of Sunday morning active, engaged church membership or membership in a local body of believers. Uh, and as you and listeners know, COVID supercharged uh, this um, this trend and the widespread availability of streaming means that for many, not all, but many young Christians or at least young open-minded seekers, uh, why get up and go through the hassle of going to church when I can watch online? And mm-hmm. so technology and lower rates of church attendance and membership are bound up with each other. So to talk about one, we have to talk about the other. Right. So, you know, I'll just jump to that. Um, That is something that you talk about in your article. If students want to retain their faith um, in college, you say, don't do the online church. You need to go in person to a local church. And so, you know, why is that? And I remember, you know, when I was in college, online church wasn't as much of a thing, but yeah, I went to a Christian college as well. And so there was kind of the question of, you know, oh, do I really have to go to church on Sunday? I mean, it was in chapel three times this week. Uh, You know, we're talking about a biblical worldview in class all the time. Um, And so the argument for why I still needed to go to a church on Sundays was sometimes hard to articulate. So what do you tell students whenever they're asking this question? That's a great question. I mean, you're right to ask that question. My students put it to me all the time, and I probably have a dozen answers, so I'll try to limit it to just a few. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I try to help my students to see is that Christianity is not a religion for individuals with a community as an optional uh, sort of addendum. Christianity is about a people. It begins with the calling of Abraham and to join um, Christ through faith and baptism is to join the family of Abraham. It's to be adopted into a people. Um, It's to be accepted uh, into this um, community, this body of believers. So the community is not a kind of extra that might help you in your personal journey of faith. It's actually essential. It's actually the thing that God from the beginning has been doing and continues to do calling and forming a people in the world. Um, 
we, and of course, God is our creator, so he knows what we need. And what we need is actual flesh and blood in-person community. Uh, so that's the first sort of big uh, point. Second is that in actual worship, Sunday morning gathered worship with other believers, there are things that happen there that quite literally cannot happen sitting in your pajamas in front of your laptop or TV at home. Mm -hmm. The most important of which is the Lord's Supper, sometimes called communion or the Eucharist. You cannot eat or drink over uh, the internet um, any more than you can shake a hand, give a hug or give a kiss. Um, And we are bodies. God made us in our bodies. We form the communal or corporate body of Christ, and we receive the body of Christ in um, the bread and wine of the meal. And one of the many things that that tells us is that God cares about our bodies, loves our bodies, and draws near to us in bodily form, in the bodies that we are. Um, And if we imagine that, well, I can watch a concert and listen to a message on YouTube, and that's sort of all that the church is, then yeah, A, you're never going to see a reason to go, but B, you're going to drift away because you're not going to be attached or connected to actual people with whom you have actual living relationships. Wow. You said so many good things. I love that community is not extra. It's essential. Also just the importance of our physical bodies. And that's, you know, a whole different conversation that can go to so many ways, but relevant to the things that we are dealing with in our culture. Um, And another thing too, just, you know, if there's any music lovers listening, you can listen to uh, a song from your favorite band on the radio, but like when you go in person in concert, it's just different. (laughs) So I don't know if that's the best analogy or not, but when you said that, it, it made me think of that of like, yeah, doesn't that make sense for church too? Like, you know, if you're sick or something, then you may have to watch online sometimes, but then why miss out on going and, and experiencing that in person? And like you said, God knows what we need. And it's interesting to me that we are seeing so many people leave organized religion, even if they still identify as spiritual or still, you know, having that, you know, more personal relationship with God, which definitely is important, but we're also seeing skyrocketing rates of loneliness and isolation, especially among young people. So do you think the two are connected? Yes. And I I was just talking about this with a group of folks uh, here in town in Abilene. Um, The, the, the funny, not the funny, but the, the odd or surprising thing about a time of mass isolation and loneliness paired with a time of um, sort of ex- radical or escalated de-churching is that the church uh, has what people need just in human terms. Obviously the church, as, as Paul says in first Corinthians 15, we're only in this because we believe it to be true. We're not there mm-hmm. for the ancillary benefits. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we can do something better with our time on Sunday mornings. Having said that, mm-hmm. uh, God wants, God desires our flourishing and he has made us to flourish in his body uh, filled with his spirit. And so what are churches? They are tight knit uh, networks that function like a second family that care for one another, that they're, you know, they show up 
at the hospital, they show up for the baptism, they show up when um, someone in your family dies, they show up um, for, for good times and bad, seasons of joy and seasons of lamenting. It's where uh, your friendships are. It's where you learn how to be in a room with people who are not only different than you, but belonging to many different generations. You know, when I, I've, I've, I've got four little kids at home and on Sunday morning when we're at church, uh, my youngest during worship sort of, uh, spit just walks around the sanctuary mm-hmm. deciding who she'll sit with, yeah. you know, <laughs> because she has all of these adults aged 40 or 50 or 60 that we trust and she trusts. I'm not even aware of another institution in the country other than other religious communities like a synagogue or mosque where that happens. So uh, yeah, I think the, the sort of epidemic rates of loneliness and isolation and lack of relationships, intimate trusting relationships and friendships. uh, I don't want to, so I don't want to suggest a causal factor like, because people are not in church, that has happened because I don't know enough to say that. Uh, the correlation is strong. And I certainly know that for people who are lonely and are seeking God, church is a place for them to find what they're looking for in more than one sense. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, that's, I have two little ones um, at home. And, you know, I love the fact that when we go to church, they're going to meet, you know, people that have, you know, backgrounds different than, you know, than their immediate family, um, that we're going to encounter people who maybe even have different political beliefs, um, you know, come from different places. We got a lot of nations represented in our local church, which is awesome. And it's like, we are united around the fact that we love Jesus and we believe in Jesus, but then um, it's just so rich, like such a rich community that you wouldn't really get anywhere else. Uh, so I think that's a great point. But, you know, we've talked kind of the technology side of, you know, the bigger screen, maybe like a laptop um, and virtual church and, and the downsides of that. But something else that you say you tell your students is if they want to retain their faith in college, delete social media. Um, so this I'm guessing you may get some gasps or surprises whenever you tell students to do this. (laughs) Um, Or maybe they're just like, that's not possible. So why does that specifically relate to faith, though, and keeping one's faith in college? Yeah, yeah. I'll say two things. Um, On one hand, um, social media, uh, to be frank, is just bad for the soul. Um, so this is for everyone. It's not just for 18 to 22 year olds or sort of the youngest Gen Z demographic. Social media is poisonous. It's an algorithm generated to not only foster, but increase, um, what Christians would call the flesh what, or rather, or what we might say in other languages, sort of like toxic or aggressively negative and critical, um, views and responses to the world, views and responses to our neighbors, to people who are different than us or have different views than us. Um, it, it, it puts us in tribes and entrenches us in those tribes and erects walls between us. And I see no good reason um, for any of us <laughs> to be on it ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can always think of something that you could uh, be doing that would be a better use of your time. Yeah. Uh, so that's on, on one hand. On the other hand, uh, so so the the article, if folks go read it, uh, in the article I share an exercise um, that I assign my students. What they do 
it follows a recommendation of a writer named Cal Newport, who's really great on this. He wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, and I, that's one of the books that we read together. And he suggests um, not, a, not a digital detox, but a digital declutter. He thinks when you detox, you, uh, you delete Instagram from your phone. And then after one, two, four, six weeks, you put it back on your phone and you're just as addicted as before. Hmm. Uh, and so if you're an alcoholic and you give up drinking for two weeks, then get, then hop back on the wagon. It doesn't, it doesn't, nothing changed. Hmm, yeah. And so he instead suggests a, a declutter where you take actually 60 days and the first 30, you eliminate all non-essential apps, platforms, programs, devices, et cetera. You know, you, uh, most of us need some access to the internet, some device uh, to do our jobs, to do schoolwork, to get by. But we do have a lot of non-essential stuff on there. So he says, delete it all um, for 30 days. And then um, after 30 days, you, you engage in a, in a second month. And in that month, you decide what you want to stay out of your life for good and what you want to reintegrate, but with better habits and boundaries. And so that's a really useful exercise for a semester. So around week four, week five, they begin this declutter. And what they do for me is they don't use a computer. They, use, they buy a journal and take handwritten notes mm. and basically keep a diary. Uh, what was it like to um, leave your phone in the car when you took a two mile walk with your friends around campus, you know? I, you know, they, they kind of feel like their phones are the nuclear football. If at any moment they don't have it, the world will come to an apocalyptic mm -hmm. end. And so I try to train them to imagine life where they don't have it handcuffed to their hand at all times. So all that to say, they usually come in averaging four to six or more hours on their smartphones per day. That's, uh, and the, predominantly they are on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, two things happen. One, they delete that for the for the for one to two months. Uh, and then two, if they are going to bring it back, which not all of them do, then the, the aim is for their daily uh, device time to be down to one to two hours, because a lot of studies show that um, adverse mental health effects begin when you are on your phone two or more hours per day. So if you're, if you're in the, in my view, if you're doing it 45 to 90 minutes per day, that's a win. And what my students say before they begin is that they quite literally cannot imagine being 20 year old college students on campus without Instagram, uh, because that is how they know anything is going on in the world. It's mm -hmm. how they receive direct messages. It's how this, that, and the other. And then after the first week and the second week and the third week, uh, they realize not only that they can live without it, but that their lives, they feel this sort of relief come over their bodies. They become less itchy and nervy. They become less anxious. They're able to sit still for more than five to 10 minutes at a time. They're able to open up a novel and read and actually read a chapter or two or six without sort of like losing themselves into it. And, uh, and all they needed was a kind of nudge that not only was this not impossible, but they might actually experience it 
as life-giving. And so I commend, I truly, I commend that to any listener. I commend it to anyone of any age. I promise you, uh, you'll be glad you did it. Wow. That is, sounds like such a good exercise. And I'm going to out myself too, because I've gotten better. I've made progress with my own relationship with social media, but I used to do, try to do detoxes, like you said, where I would, you know, delete it for a month. I'm like, I'm going to delete the Facebook app from my phone or something like that. Um, I'll check it occasionally, you know, on the computer, but I'm not going to have it on my phone all the time. Well, then I ended up using right. the web browser on my iPhone, which is a computer, <laughs> <laughs> to go and do it. And now I'm like, I'm on, I'm on Facebook and it's less convenient because I'm not using the app. And so, um, <laughs> or, you know, like you, you just sign back in after a month. And so I'm really, I really think that this is interesting. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, if you teach this, I don't know how many semesters you've taught this, but do you have students even after the class and after the initial relief that come back to you a year later or something and say, guess what? I'm still off social media or I'm still, you know, practicing these better habits because of your class. Like what's the longevity of that? Yeah. You know, I wish a big picture. I not only wish I knew the answer to that, I, I, it, it makes me think that I should actually institute formal mechanisms of surveying my students six months, 12 months, 24 months out. I do have anecdotal conversations with students who either stay on campus because they're not graduated or graduate and keep in touch via email. And I won't, I, I can't imagine that sort of everybody is cured afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but the stu- I'll put it this way. I would expect it is reasonable to say that many students continue to have a far healthier relationship and a few actually sort of go big or go home. I mean, I I had one who, um, she was just, she was just like everybody else spending hours and hours and she, she sort of went all the way. She didn't just take the apps off her phone. She deleted her accounts with these various social media platforms she, you know, I give them a little tip to change their their screens to grayscale or black and white instead of color because the color is kind of eye candy um, for our brains and mm. our brains don't beg us to stare at it when it's in boring black and white. I mean, she took off everything. You know, I model for them my my old iPhone that has I be, I can basically text on it. I can make calls. I can listen to music and I can listen to audiobooks. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't have Google Maps, I don't have the weather, it's black and white. Wow. It's a dumb phone that happens to be an iPhone. And uh I have a few who who sort of follow me follow me into the wilderness on that one. Um and uh I at the very least my hope, you know, they're 20. I mean, any people of any age can gain and lose good or bad habits. My hope is that it plants seeds for all of them about what's possible so that they don't take, they don't take as inevitable the kind of mass addiction and poor usage that they will see modeled for them. And actually I'll add as a postscript, you know, it's hard to talk about this if you are in your thirties or forties and you have children, because in many ways, people who have older children or teenagers, um, have already kind of they're they're pot committed. Um, in other words, they've given the iPads to the young kids. They've bought the smartphones for the for the fifth graders, whatever. And these things are really delicate. You're gonna you're gonna hurt some feelings if these things come up. But so what I get my students to do 
is, hey, you guys are neither married nor have children. Like you guys are not yet in that stage of life. This is a time for you to think about now, if you're going to have a household, of course, you're going to have a household of some kind, but especially if you're going to have a spouse and kids, what do you want your household to look like? And what decisions can you make now? And then if and when you find a spouse um, to ensure that that future comes about and that you have agency rather than that future happening to you in spite of what you wished. Yeah, that's so good. And definitely, you know, create those habits now that are going to serve you well over the course of your life. Um, I don't know. I think it's the jury's still out on exactly how many days it takes, but you know, you can form a new habit in your brain. You know, through, they know through neuroplasticity and everything that it's like pathways in your brain. And if you do something for a right. certain amount of days, and I think some people say even around two months, which, so your 60 day declutter is, you know, really good for that. You can actually mm. form a new habit. Yeah. So um, if you just stay consistent with something, then it's like you're breaking free of it and you are you're yeah. building upon that new habit for the rest of your life. Uh, I have a student who, um, one one thing that I try, this isn't the focus of the class, but it is a kind of subtext. It's kind of beneath the surface is that I want to make them readers because one of the things that uh, one of the side effects of uh, the sort of digital revolution for Gen Z is that by the time they're in their 20s, they've been on their screens for uh, a decade or more. And what they report is that they don't really sit down and read books. They might, they, and they, and they even sometimes lack the capacity to do so because it's just so difficult to sit still and focus. And so one of the things I do is I, I have an exercise where I, where I ask all of them, they can be anonymous. They don't have to share it, but they'll write down for me anonymously since, since eighth grade. So, you know, basically in the last five to five to eight years, how many books have you read in total? that were not assigned by a teacher uh, that you read all of and that were as hard as or harder than the last Harry Potter book. In other words, like sort of a kid's book doesn't count. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only is is sort of 80% of the room in the like two to four range. In other words, like one book every two years, which just, you know, makes my head explode as a professor. (laughs) But I've had, I've had more than a few students who say none. Like wow. I quite literally, I quite literally have not read a book in a decade. And even ones that were assigned to me, I kind of did cliff notes or whatever. And I had one student in particular whom I really, um, I really uh, appreciated. He, uh, he shared with the class, he had basically never read a book in his life. And that was not quite literally true, but basically as a 22 year old, he wasn't a book reader. And by the end of the semester, he read a book for fun. And it was like, to me, it was sort of like in all my teaching, it was my greatest accomplishment to get this, get this student to, it wasn't a book for me. He just picked a novel that he thought would be a pleasant read, a pleasure to read. And he read it and he reported to us, like I read a book for fun, not because anybody tried to get me to learn something. I just did it instead of playing video games. And it, it's those sort of little little wins that are uh, a joy to see in this class. Yes. Oh, I love that. So um, I also um, teach 
English part-time to middle schoolers and high schoolers. And so, you know, literature, like that's the, that's the battle, <laughs> right? Saying, oh my word. Yeah. Trying to teach, especially with these generations, you know, um, reading is great and not just like read these books that you have to read for the curriculum, but like actually learn to love reading. And so that's what an, something else I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, if somebody does delete social media or declutter, at least they're having some new time, not spending, you know, it frees up a few hours a day. What do they fill that time with? Um, and so you've mentioned reading. Uh, so obviously that's an important one, but what are some of the other options that open up? Yeah, that's actually, we spend uh, maybe the, the final third of the semester asking the question like, okay, uh, you have time on your hands. I had, I had a freshman one year is he calculated that the previous week leading up to the declutter, he was on his phone 10 hours a day. And so, uh, and then he cut it down by the end of the class to two hours per day. So he gained (laughs) eight hours per day, you know, uh, across. And so it's kind of like, well, I mean, just imagine that's a, that's a whole life, you know, that you've got, you've got uh, a lot to work with. So we actually, it's, it might sound a little funny, but we spend a lot of the class talking about hobbies. Yeah. Like, what do you do with leisure time? If you're not doing, if you're not in class, I've got students, obviously this would apply for people to, who are not in school as well, but I've, you know, they, they go to class, they have homework, many of them have jobs and they sleep. They don't sleep enough, but they do sleep. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, what else do you do? And, uh, obviously I want them to be readers, but I accept not only will they not all become bookish nerds like me, but, but you know, the goal is not to sort of replace those eight hours with eight hours of reading every day. Um, it's, it's exercise, it's walks with friends, it's uh, gardening, it's, uh, picking up a musical instrument, it's learning another language. It's things like prayer and fasting and feasting and, uh, quiet devotion time with scripture and with God. I mean, there's so much stuff. And, you know, obviously we're, this whole conversation is piggybacking on multiple generations of, of high television viewing. And that's been partially translated into our tablets and smartphones. And so part of what we talk about is this doesn't mean binge Netflix instead of looking at Instagram. It's, it's find a way to be in God's good creation, be with other people, find ways to serve at some, at a local food pantry or prison or what have you, you know, uh, or just, you know, find, find ways to do nothing productively on, on a Sabbath. We, another book they read and that I'd recommend to listeners is, uh, an author named Andy Crouch. He, he wrote a wonderful book called, uh, the tech wise family. And then last year he wrote a book whose name I'm forgetting. It is called the life we're looking for. Sorry, I was turning around to find it in my office. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, one of the things he recommends is that, uh, uh, he, he gives 10 practices, but two in particular are very practical for my students. And I think for anyone, the first is, uh, you wake up before your phone wakes up and your phone goes to bed before you go to bed. In other words, you have time when you are rising from sleep. And then when you're preparing for bed, where your phone is off or at least on silent and away from where you sleep. And that's really good for my students and for many others of us, Mm -hmm. because uh, there can be some bad habits around our beds and our uh, devices where maybe they even kind of sleep with us or we stare at them until we fall asleep. And that is bad in every way. 
And then the other one is, he says, uh, have at least one hour per day, one day per week, and one week per year with zero screens whatsoever. So have at least one hour per day when you are no screens are in sight. Um, it's not that you've put the phone away to turn on, to turn on, um, HBO or something one day per week. He, he suggests Sunday. It could be Saturday for others where all the screens are off. The TV is off, no sports. The phones are quite literally off and hidden and you're present to family friends, neighbors, et cetera. And even one week per year, he take, I believe he takes a vacation with his family where the, the, the screens are left behind and they are out in the world, out in nature, et cetera. And once you do that, you realize how often our screens can be a crutch for moments of boredom or uncertainty about what to do with our time. And when we push through that uncertainty and even frustration uh, or anxiety, we can find ways to be with God, with ourselves and with other people. Wow. That's so wonderful and such great tips. And I'm so glad that you're addressing this um, for college students. And I think there's so much we can learn uh, no matter what age we are. It's never too late to implement a good, healthy habit. And like you said, with you know the one student getting eight hours a day back, like you can really you know, get your life back or back on track by implementing uh, some of these practices. So I'm so glad that you've uh, just given us a little bit of insight into what you teach at Abilene Christian University and talked about your article with us. Um, There's so much good stuff here. And you can find uh, more information for our listeners at knowwhypodcast.com. I will link to all of the resources that Dr. East has mentioned. So before we wrap up, because we are about out of time, you said you had another article also related to tech issues that are relevant today coming out soon in Christianity Today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a it's funny to talk about it uh, in advance. It's written, I'm, I'm working on it with the editor, but I'm hopeful it's come out. it'll come out um maybe late September, early October, and will be available to listeners once this is posted. It's basically, you know, whenever Christians talk about technology and new technologies, I think there's a little bit of a, of a worry of seeming to be anti-technology. Uh, you know, God made us to be creative and inventive, and all kinds of technology benefit our lives. Um, we're glad for penicillin. Uh, we're glad for anesthesia in uh, surgery. We're glad to have fire. I live in West Texas. I'm glad for air conditioning, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I, in my experience, we sometimes pull our punches because we don't want to seem like a Luddite, meaning someone who wants to keep driving the horse and buggy instead of the car to work. And with the advent of artificial intelligence and programs like ChatGPT, I, my, my, my response is that they should have no place in Christian ministry. I do not think we should find a place for them. I don't think that we should see them as inevitable. I don't think we should see them as sort of equivalent to like email or voice amplification via microphones. I think they are a temptation to be resisted, a siren song to ignore, And so in the article, I'm trying to basically make the strong case for that hard no rather than a kind of gray middle. And I make the case for um, uh, not only um, why that is, but how 
saying no, or at least answering the question about AI and ministry clarifies what ordained or formal church leadership is all about, like what God actually wants pastors and preachers to spend their time doing. And actually, therefore, thinking about AI and ministry is helpful and productive for refocusing our attention on what matters in ministry. Wow, that sounds fascinating and very relevant. So we will be looking for that article and have that posted at knowwhypodcast.com as well. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Any resources that you'd like to share or final thoughts to leave us with? I'll give a couple recommendations. I already mentioned Crouch and Newport. Um, A couple other authors uh, that I think folks would benefit from reading if they wanted to pursue this further. One is named Matthew Crawford, and he has a substack. He's written three books. He's a prolific uh, writer, very thoughtful on these on these um, matters um, in, a, in a very direct way. Another one is Alan Jacobs. He teaches uh, English in the Honors Program at uh, Baylor, and he has an, a blog he's active on. He's written a bunch of books, and uh, he, he's a, uh, a Christian and uh, has a lot a lot of good things to say about this. A little bit more highbrow, but something I really, um, really enjoy is a magazine or journal called The New Atlantis. And you can find it online. You can subscribe. Um, it, for, my, for my money, um, it comes out four times a year. For my money, the articles and essays and reviews in that magazine are the best thing going right now on technology in general and on the challenges that digital technology uh, uh, presents to us today. Wow. Great, great recommendations. Thank you. And then for people who say, you know what, I am going to read some more books. You have a few and some coming out. So tell us about your books in case people are interested in those. Sure. So I've got uh, two that have been published um, that are both in different ways on the Bible. One is called The Doctrine of Scripture. One is called uh, The Church's Book. Um, Those are on the more academic side, though the first one, The Doctrine of Scripture, is probably pitched at um, pastors and uh, ministers, maybe, say, with an MDiv. And I've got two coming out next year that are meant for um, a popular or a lay audience, folks in the pews. One is called The Church, A Guide to the People of God, a little book in a series published by Lexham Press. that, as you would expect, is, is about the church. And uh, in a little over a year, I've got a book uh, that's coming out with Erdman's called Letters to a Future Saint. And that book in particular is written for my students. So anyone who is listening who either is in the kind of, you know, 15 to 30 year old demo or who knows someone who is, say you're a parent or a youth minister, it is a book for people, folks like that, who want to be Christian, who are intrigued by Christian faith, but want to go deeper, want meat instead of milk. And it's written in the form of very brief letters uh, to the reader. And um, I just actually just sent it off and got it approved a month ago. And I'm excited about that coming out next year. Those sound great, um, especially letters to a future saint. I look forward to reading that. So Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you, Dr. East, for joining the podcast today. And thank you for listening to the Know Why podcast. You can find more about what we've been discussing today at knowwhypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.